when you were talking about interests, I realized in a weird way, I don't have any. And by that, I mean, everything is somewhat interest. Like I have disinterest. Is that a weird thing? I like, I live my life based on what I don't want to do more so. Um, and so when I think about myself as a friend, to be honest, it's not about, oh, do you like the same things as me? Or do you talk about the same things? Or do you think the same way? But what it is about is helping me get back to myself. Hello, hello, and welcome to Sonder Union. I am Owen McGran. I'm just a guy. This episode finds me talking with Sarah Enor. Um, I hope that it is as much fun to listen to as it was for me to record. Um, Sarah and I both have ADHD, and while we did not intend to spend the episode talking about ADHD, it's kind of what we did. Um, I guess that's just what we had at top of mind. Um, I hope that one of the things that you will see or hear listening to this episode is the, the sort of digressive and elusive nature of the ADHD brain. Taking a topic, finding all kinds of tangents, and then somehow bringing things back home in a way that perhaps you might not have expected. Anyway, um, if you have a moment, please do rate and review Sonder Union on whatever podcast platform you use. And with that, let's get to the tape. Sarah Enor is the first Canadian guest that we have on Sonder Union, and that might seem like a odd first fact to throw out um, at the beginning of a podcast, but we first started really talking when we both presented at the Authentic Lawyers Summit on ADHD and the um, attorney workplace. Now, the Authentic Lawyer Summit is run by another bunch of Canadians, and I think that you went to college with a good friend of mine, Pat Veu. Um, I don't know. Um, and it seems like Canadians keep infiltrating my life. Um, so that was kind of the thing that occurred to me when I was first taking notes here is, you know, you guys are taking over the world or at least mine. Um, so with, with that, you know, um, I invited Sarah on because, uh, one, the premise of the show is I talk to people that I find fascinating. Um, Sarah certainly qualifies for that. Um, and, uh, Sarah and I both share the distinction of having ADHD, which we've both experienced in the, uh, the good ways and the monumentally frustrating ways. And, and, um, I talk about it a fair amount, but usually not with people who have any sort of understanding of it. Um, so, uh, Sarah, welcome to Sonder Union. Thank you very much. Really excited to be here. Cool. So the, the first question that I ask everybody um, is so in sporting events, right? When you come on, whether it's a relief pitcher or a, a wrestler or something, you have entrance music, your walk-up music, right? If you had to choose a song to be your entrance music, what would it be? Um, I don't know if the song is called. Is Eight Mile the name of the song? That like or Lose Yourself? Lose or... Yourself. Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, that's, um, it came about mostly because I don't actually typically start sport with music. I, mm-hmm. 
I've played for Canada, as I'm sure you've like sussed out. Um, but our captain would always just start blasting pump up music. Mm-hmm. It was like, I need to be in my own quiet zone thinking about how brilliant yeah. I'm going to be on this field um, more so. But uh, this song kind of was played on the bus once heading mm-hmm. to a competition. And I was, and it was my first time playing for Canada. Yeah. I was like, you need to get one shot. Do not miss your chance, you know? <laughs> and I was, so that, yeah, that just has stuck with me as, if I have to listen to music, which most of the time I would prefer not to, that would be mm-hmm. the one. But there's also, I don't like to make a choice about anything. Um, and recently I've been really going down a rabbit hole of um, sort of really empowering music by women or just a, a lot about taking chances and about mm-hmm. trusting yourself. So Soulmate by Lizzo has really okay. I've been listening to a lot. And also... Um, I don't know if you've seen what is now my new Christmas movie forever is um, Spirited with Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds, another Canadian taking over your life for sure. Anyways, one of the songs, he starts to sing it in the middle of of, of the beginning of the show and he gets cut off. And so then um, at the end, though, they put this performance of it on and it's like, anyway, there's water and there's tap dancing and it's ridiculous. But it's all about, you know, going big or going home, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a weird little Christmas song that I sometimes send to people. I'm like, what are you sending me this for? Yeah, yeah. What's well, a long way of saying I don't like music before? <laughs> before that's, that, that, that's fair, right? So a couple of thoughts coming out of that. Every time I hear, you know, go big or go home, mm. my initial thought was, I think you underestimate my underestimate underestimate my desire to just go home, yeah. um, and, <laughs> and stay at home. Um, but um, you, you mentioned playing for Canada. It was Australian rules football. Yeah. Yeah, so thank you for calling it rugby. May I just say it's one of the first times. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, how long have you played, and how'd you get into that? That's that's it's, it's it's a pretty intense sport. Yeah, so I chase dopamine in mm-hmm. general. Yeah. Um, when I was in, nineteen years old, my mother invited me to come play field hockey with her at some local thing in Ottawa. And I was asked to be on the varsity team. So that was my varsity sport all through university. Um, Then I moved to Toronto for work and I started playing with a local club. I was disgruntled because I'm also a control freak and they were running it in a way that I just could not stand for and decided to start my own club. And so there was a Australian fellow who turned up on the last day of my playing at that sport. And I said, you should come to this other club we're starting over here. He said, well, great, but we're trying to start a women's team for Australian football. You should come. I'll come if you'll come to this training. And so I did, petrified, um, but I was kind of good at it. And it's been a pretty good theme in my life that I follow everything that I'm good at and hyper-focus and love it for a good long while. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I went to my first game and it was this really weird version of it because the women's league was so new. So as you Mm. may know, it's played on an oval, um, but we sort of played it like half-court basketball where you have to clear the ball outside of the 50-meter to come back in and score. And almost nobody had ever played before. So it was the most, it's already pandemonium at the best of times. And then you had to remember to turn around and then go back. Anyway, it was crazy. (laughs) But someone had said, you know, the first, the person who never stops going for the ball and just, just keeps going after it, even if they make a mistake and just keeps going and going is the person that's going to be the best player on that team. And I was not the best player on that day, but um, I was asked by the coach of the national team to come to Australia a few months later to participate on the national team. And I thought, well, yeah, sure. like, I'm I'm an old lady. I didn't think that this would ever happen to me at this age. Um, and so that that was uh, 2011. 
so I went to Australia at 11, 14, 17. Um, I was planning to go in 21 as an assistant coach, but um, the pandemic, as you know. Um, and then I've been to uh, for, to um, the U.S. all in between those and things. So I guess it's what my math is terrible. What year are we? 15 years? Yeah. yeah. Just about. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm cur- I'm gonna pull it back to to music here for a second. Um, when you work, do you need some music or other noise or something to to get you into a uh, a groove? No, I find music distracting. I find noise distracting. Huh. I guess I try to figure out what symptoms I have. Do I have sensitivity to, you know noise or light or feeling and stuff. I think noise, um, I find it a little bit distracting, but I've been experimenting. Have you heard of solfeggio frequencies? No, do tell. So basically it's just music that is, it's either just a a tone Mm -hmm. or sometimes it's music with a tone kind of underlying the whole line of it. Okay. And apparently it aligns with chakras, like certain frequencies align Mm -hmm. with certain chakras. I don't know what chakras really are, (laughs) but I thought, you know, and things like, what is it, binaural yeah. music as well that goes back and forth between your ears. The first time I put that in my ears, I was like, oh my God, my brain is on fire. And I also discovered that there's a certain BPM that mm. helps you focus. And so I'm experimenting a little bit, but I find I can do something like a tone or even like it might be, what do you call those little meditation bowls that they yeah. dig yeah. and it just goes at that tone. Um, and white noise is kind of okay, but sometimes I start paying attention to it and mm-hmm. I get really distracted by the fact that I sound like I'm in an airplane right now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't yeah. need it. Yeah. I, I find it fascinating because there there's, I, I mean, people think that ADHD is one thing, but it is all kinds of different, you know, related kind of things. Um, from speaking with uh, a bunch of people with ADHD, people tend to either be like, no, I need silence or I need stuff going on behind me so that there's enough background that my brain can then focus in on the one thing that, that I intend to be doing. Um, See, I started thinking about what it is that motivates me. Mm-hmm. And this comes up from, you know, preparing for my work, for example. But like, I was just thinking the other day about the interest-based nervous system concept mm-hmm. and why urgency constitutes an interest sort of thing. And what I think for myself is I'm very interested in my reputation and sticking to my commitments and sort of, you know, I did a values evaluation with an executive coach once when I was at the bank and they, I was like, I have 6,000 versions of be direct, be honest, say what you mean, mean what you say, you know? And so that's really a strong, a strong value for me. And so I care about this urgency because I don't want to not meet a commitment I've made to someone Mm -hmm. else. Um, and it, it is a theme I'm noticing. So things like when I say I can't go to the gym unless someone is there and I said I'm going to go or I have a trainer and I've said I have an appointment or, you know, those kinds of things. And so for me, I think that I want to start figuring out how to get someone to sit in my house mm-hmm. and just be at a table with me um, because I feel like if they're watching me and all I'm doing is surfing my phone or right. napping, they're going to think less of me. So yeah. <laughs> Have you tried the um, like co-working through Zoom? 
No. So I, I I've started doing that, and it is it it serves the same kind of thing, right? You go in yeah. there, you announce what it is that you're going to do, you leave the camera on, you mute, and then you do your work. But everybody can, I mean, nobody's actually watching people, right? But just right. having the threat of it there, right? Um, <laughs> what do they think? You know, it, it it it. I feel like it keeps me honest in a way that, um, you know, on the one hand, you know, like there's a sense of shame that is like I need somebody to hold my hand and and like hold me to task make me do the work right babysitter Uh, and cheerleader those are my two top people I need yeah um but at the same time if I you know I one of the things that I am constantly doing is trying to build accountability for myself right because I'm not going to hold myself accountable right if there's any opportunity to go off on a frolic and detour and, and do something that's interesting in the moment I'm off right yeah but if there are people around who I say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to check in with you when, whenever. And I give you, the, give you the full authority to say, hey, you said that you were going to do this. What happened? Right? Oh, I saw your post about your book. I'm scared right? to comment. On it, but. <laughs> yeah. But Hopefully I mean. I don't think I, I don't know if I will. Like strangers on the internet. Will I care that they don't that I'm not doing it and that they're expecting me to. I don't know if I will. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the the thing is, you know, and this might, I I don't mean to dismiss some of the people who are commenting and stuff like that, but there are some people on there who I know. Right. And, and whose opinion I do care about. Sure. Um, Yeah. Not all of them. I mean, I'm sure they're nice people, but I don't, I don't really know them. Um, But there are enough people there who have my, my cell phone number, right. (laughs) can send me a text like, what the hell? Um, you know, so that kind of accountability is really the only way that I tend to get anything done. Yeah. Um, I think back a lot to when I was working at the bank and, well, you heard my little story at the authentic lawyer. And if you caught the part where I was like, if I'm in charge of the timeline, it's probably going to suit me just fine. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's really, when I think about what would have been a helpful piece of feedback to me about my time management, that wasn't just, you know, manage your time better. Yeah, try harder. It would have been set me a deadline. Right. And I, and I mean, set me a deadline and then let me flail and flounder myself if I don't hit it. Because if you mm-hmm. come and save me and say, Oh, I'm sure, you know, we got really busy and no, we tried, but it wasn't really, right. like, let me fail. And I'm not going to fail, fail. Cause like, I don't do that, yeah. but I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to, maybe have to look a bit embarrassed in front of an executive or something, right? Like, that is enough that I will never do it again. If you save me, I will be like, okay, so I am authorized to be late for everything, even though you're saying do it better. Right. Um, and so, and you made a point a little earlier about how, you know, it, ADHD is so many things. I think it's so important also to just realize it's completely different for every different person. Mm-hmm. Like we think that ADHD is distraction and time management. I know people that have quite good time management and sometimes it comes from all the comorbidities and things, right? Like, sure. oh, I'm also OCD. And so I, sure, I can get everything done right. all the time. Right. But, you know, I, everybody is different. So I just really, I wish people would just ask and I wish people would just accept mm-hmm. our differences because- yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I that I did want to talk about, right? ADHD is so often associated with, you know, hyperactive little boys, 
right? And all that nonsense. Um, you'll probably be shocked to hear that I've, I was never really hyperactive in the way that, you know, people think <gasps> about, right? It's like, yeah. I tend to be more introspective and, and like slow to get a thought out. And, and I really, and so, um, you know, but I'm constantly drumming on things with my fingers. And like, that's, that's how any sort of hyperactivity comes out of me. Mm-hmm. But because of the stereotypes around what ADHD is, it is chronically underdiagnosed in, in girls and women. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if, I mean, I'm sure you, you have some thoughts about that, but also just the, the ways that it presents differently in girls and women um, and, and the kind of things to think about. Yeah. So, I mean, rumor has it that the primary difference is that we don't usually present with a hyperactive presentation. But what I'm realizing is, like you said, I don't think it's that. I think it's we don't outwardly act hyperactive. And I think part of that has to do a big, 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 big part. And in fact, a lot of the disabling elements of ADHD, I think, come from society. Right. So Mm. if women have been told to behave and don't be too much and don't take up too much space and don't da 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 like my brother he would guess that he has ADHD probably also um and he was the typical no I wouldn't say he was a hyperactive completely disruptive boy but he was an active you know I want to be running around and playing with my friends all the time and I mean I'm an active and sporty sort of person but I wasn't incapable of sitting still by any stretch either um, but I would sort of monitor him, right? Like when he wanted to throw a rock out of a moving car window, I'd be like, no, you know, I'm, I'm acting like your mother now all of a sudden, oh, behave and, you know, we must be proper. And, you know, and I think a lot of women face that, um, the socialization to behave that way, first of all. But I don't know if there is maybe also a physiological, I'm not, I'm not a science majologist, you know, like I don't know what the, what the official things are, but I, um, I'm sure there could be also just um, technical or brain-related reasons why women do it different. And it's, it kind of goes to that whole thing you start seeing in the news that all oh, medical research seems to be done on men. And then we're just like, okay, now women are just men with ovaries. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, but I mean, even, even the scientists and the, the doctors, you know, my, my wife is a psychiatrist. Okay. Right? When we first started dating, you know, she and I told her that I had ADHD, and she was like, "Yeah, but you seem pretty put together, right?" And I was like, "You should know better than this, mm. right?" Doctors do but not know better. Owen. Like, let me tell you, they—they're they, like lawyers, right? They're like lawyers when you come to us in our early years before we've seen the light and realized that we were so very wrong, but. <laughs> You know, we say, oh, well, but the law says, da, da, da. Like, we're supposed, you're only supposed to do this. Right. And they forget to look at what the business imperative is. And they forget to assess risk. And because we don't know that we're allowed to, because we just went through a whole training session at law school that says competence, accuracy, right. you know, we have to know all these things. And so I think doctors are largely in the same circumstance. And if the doctor doesn't have the condition, And this is the thing that I just really want to put out in the world in general is look at people and ask them about their experience and learn about them. Because like if I could go 44 years and when I said I couldn't do X and someone said me too, and I thought we were having the same experience, 
and then discovered that I was completely wrong when I tried medication just one day. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh my God, is this the clarity that you've been walking around with your whole life? Like, what the heck? Um, but my doctor, too, that diagnosed me, he's got a little thing. I don't mean to be mean to my doctor. Like, oh. he's fine. But like, he's got a little thing on his email signature that says, ADHD is an explanation, not an excuse for bad behavior. Oh, fuck and off. I'm like, exactly. Fuck off. Like, <laughs> what are you you know, this just exacerbates the, all we have to do is push through. All we need to do is medicate. All we need to do is, you know, it it also stigmatizes behavior, right. In a way that, you know, makes it somehow totalizing as opposed to just an aspect of, of the person. Right. And what is wrong with behaving anyway? Like, I don't know, hyperactively or speaking out being loud. And and it's, it gets back to that normative nature of, yeah. you know, why can't you just be more normal? It's like, well, fuck, you're normal. You're boring as shit. Right. You know, um, you know, the, so when did you get your diagnosis? March. Okay. So pretty recently. Yeah. Like five, five minutes ago. So, for so, sure. so talk me, talk me through the, the sort of, emotional impact of getting the diagnosis, right? Because I, I got my diagnosis when I was six Um, because I'm a white boy and, you know, doctors pay attention. Um, But, you know, I've I've spoken with a lot of people who got it and had this sort of wave of all kinds of uh, unexpected and sometimes conflicting emotions about getting the diagnosis. Yeah. So I don't, um, the fact that I got the diagnosis, I am not conflicted on. I am so sure. glad I did it. Yeah. It has made a huge difference to me, accepting myself, understanding myself, um, you know, getting the support that I need, all of it. Um, but I and and I don't really have. I, I experience sort of the emotional regulation part a little differently, I think, than than a lot of folks because. Um, I feel like I need to go back to time immemorial to tell, answer this question. So my mother is a fiery Trinidadian woman. She walks into every room like she owns the place. She deserves to be there. She knows it. She does not care what anybody has to say about her. Now, a lot of people would say, oh, my gosh, that's you. You do the same thing and and, and all of that. Um, and that's certainly where I learned it from, I think. And I, I like that I am self-confident and not paralyzed by fear when I walk into groups of people. Um, when I got diagnosed and I said to my mother, are you surprised by this? Because it took, first of all, it took me complete shock. I had, when the person that asked me if I had ADHD that sort of spurred this self-reflection, I was like, why would you ask me that? I have no idea. And then when I got the diagnosis, I well, actually, I shouldn't say the diagnosis was shocking, but as I started to look at TikTok reels, because that's how you apparently right. self-diagnose these days, um, <laughs> I was really surprised to see how much resonated with me. But to think that I had a disorder and like a condition that I'd had my entire life, it never even occurred to me ever, right? And so then, so there was that piece of sort of shock and, and awe, but it also made my whole life make sense. So that part was... A relief because it's and it wasn't instant you know I didn't sit there with this wave of like oh my god thank god I know myself now but it, as a process of sort of understanding oh um everything that I thought was my personality as it turns out 
is, or my foibles and failings too, is mm-hmm. just the way my brain works. So there is a reason. It's not these 360 reviews that I received that said, you know, you're too confident, too ambitious. You don't leave room for other people. You know, you don't, you don't um, leave space in meetings and ask, make other people feel valued and, and wait your turn. And, you know, and I thought, yeah, I used to say, oh, I'm a big personality. That's just, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a wallflower, but those are all things that, oh, I'm impatient. I'm not going to wait for you to get around to the five steps later that I'm already on in this conversation. Right. When I could just, this meeting could be five minutes. Like we could sit here for the full hour or I could tell you what the answer is. Cause I am there. <laughs> right. And I don't put together the connection, right. That yeah, other people exactly. just don't see. And it's not a, in a cocky way whatsoever. And it's not that I haven't listened to you, but trust my husband. He, like it feels that way <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, it just made so much sense. But to your point about the, the other flip side of it, I definitely identify as well with the morning concept. And I don't, I'm very, I'm wrestling it with, with it for like the early years of my life. I I don't really feel there's a lot of mourning there because in a way by not knowing about it and just operating about my daily life and being lucky enough to be Mm -hmm. raised, to be unapologetic about being different. Like I, I definitely acknowledge the privilege that goes with that. Um, and having education, right? And being a lawyer in the bank, I can be a bit of an asshole as it turns out. And I'm not getting fired tomorrow, right? And the legal just says, like, legal is really, they're stern. They always, maybe they do know something we don't know. like it, So that you get some grace on that. But where I have the morning, I think, is just in the more recent past where I had left my job. I traveled around, thought I'm going to get another job. And then I'm like, job sounds like a disgusting word. I don't want one of those. And then I started in a... a practiced as a stopgap to try and earn money until, but I knew I didn't really want to keep doing it. And so, or I thought I knew, but I had an ego and I, you know, I kind of, whatever, but um, eventually that turned into anxiety and depression. It turned into not leaving my couch. It turned into what felt very much like in university when it was reading week and you'd been go, go, go all the time. And then you're like, I'm on vacation. I can rest on my couch until one in the afternoon in my pajamas. But then you're like, I should be doing something right now. What am I not doing? Like it just sort of felt this like failure feeling that I'm supposed to be doing something. I'm a very educated person. I have all the motivation in my head. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know where to start. I don't know what I want to do. You can do anything is literally the biggest possible it's such a big thing, right? Like uh-huh. empowering on the one hand, and it's what I've been told my whole life. On the other. But there's a lot of stuff out there. Like uh-huh. which one do I start with? Where do I pick, right? And so if I had known eight years ago, not even eight years, if I had known around the time that I started to get sad, mm-hmm. like what difference might that have made? How far ahead might I have moved my business? I mean, I might not have even gone into the business I'm in now. I might have come up with something else. Um, but yeah, there's definitely, I think a lot of people have a bit of mourning and a lot of people have it from when they were much younger because they think, oh my God, if I just known this, I could have had insert whatever support would have been helpful for exams for me or whatever else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. You know, I, I got a diagnosis at six, Mm -hmm. um, but I, and I remember this very, very distinctly. We were in the, um, psychologist or psychiatrist's office got the diagnosis. I was, this would have been like 86 
somewhere around there, 87 maybe. Mm-hmm. And the first words that came out of either of my parents' mouths were my dad saying, that's not a real thing. Right. <laughs> now, as you know, ADHD is a very, very genetically transmitted kind of thing. I guarantee you that my mother does not have ADHD, right? My so, mother. Right. <laughs> my dad uh, definitely, I think, does, though. Yeah. He doesn't uh, know, but... Yeah, and, and my dad, to this day, refuses to even consider the possibility. He's like, I get my work done. I was like, uh-huh. So? Doesn't mean you're stupid, by the way. <laughs> right, right. Um. But because of my dad's attitude towards it, I got a diagnosis, but nothing, right? There was, there was no actual treatment or help or anything like that. So I just lived basically my entire life self-coping. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a period um, I got very ill and um, I ended up having a liver transplant. Part of the side effect of of liver disease is hepatic encephalopathy, which presents like Alzheimer's. Okay. I was like, I knew there was going to be words you were going to say on this one because I wasn't going to (laughs) understand. So so your brain basically slowly turns off, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, by the time that I started getting the symptoms, I had more or less had a working relationship with ADHD, right? It impacted me in ways that weren't great, and it helped me in ways that were. But it was just kind of, it was there and I I was coping with it. Mm -hmm. After my transplant, when my brain, it was like it turned back on, right? It was shocking, right? Because, you know, after it had slowed down, right? And it wasn't like it was normal. It was just not working properly. All of a sudden, all of the ADHD was right here, right in front of my face constantly. Mm -hmm. Um, And... After the transplant, I can't take medication because it's all metabolized to the liver, mm. right? So it's been an adventure over the past, I guess, just about four years. I had my transplant on January 22nd, 2020, right? Just learning to live in the head again, right? And, yeah. and dealing with the, the full brunt of it yeah. um, has been an adventure for me. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean... Just going back for one second to the people don't think this is real thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it's just so frustrating. I think the way that it's talked about, we talked about how the doctors talk about it even to their own patients and like right. all that stuff, but, and not all of them. I'm sure there are wonderful doctors that get mm-hmm. it or who have it, but um, it's also just like, look at a, any headline about ADHD, right? They, they, or a, a, the first sentence of an article, diagnoses are on the rise for ADHD. And then the first sentence is something like, ADHD is a condition that can cause difficulty concentrating and controlling impulses right. for children or whatever. And it's like, do you, you want to start by calling it a disorder and then follow it up with, there are some minor inconveniences that children might experience from this, like being forgetsy, you know? Right, It is so, so, so much more than that. And I actually, I joined a Facebook group that's about neurodivergent memes, which is just hilarity Mm. 24 hours a day. But someone posted something. It was like, you know, um, I don't know. We all pee. And the person's like, yeah, but if you were peeing 60 times a day, like you might want to go see a doctor about that, right? (laughs) Right. 
it's the magnitude and the inconsistency that I think people can't comprehend because we, and I say this, it's completely fair, right? We all filter everything we observe through the lens that we observe it through, right? I thought people who didn't speak in meetings had no brains in their head for a long time until I realized, oh, wait, just because I process every single thing and I don't even know what I think until I say it out loud in a room Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that everybody does that. Some people sit quietly inside their heads and speak when they have a conclusion. Interesting. I, I, and then there's the, also the connection between, <clears throat> you know, I know that now because I went to leadership coach, coaching because, you know, apparently <laughs> I don't leave space for others. And um, I learned all about, you know, different personality types and, and what they actually bring to the table and all the stuff I want to share about ADHD. Like, I might cut you off and I might seem like I'm not empathetic, but if you just look at it a slightly different way, you'll see I'm super empathetic, actually, and I really care about you. Yeah. Uh, just can't do small talk, just can't, I'm not a listener in the traditional way. Um, but I think we really don't get a picture that, and so like connecting even just in my brain, I know that people sometimes process in their heads, mm-hmm. but in my how do I now interact with you? I still don't get it. And it still frustrates me. And so I know that's going to happen for people with my ADHD and I'm okay with that, but understanding it, like, I just, I want to bring the same level of like heart and understanding that we all had when we saw George Floyd, for example, to what ADHD is, right? Like, I promise you, like, have you ever met anybody who was intentionally lazy? Like there literally isn't a person. So don't say that ADHD is like an excuse for laziness because I don't want to be lazy. I want to be successful. I want to do everything I say I'm going to do. Like it's what I want. Mm-hmm. It's what I think about in my head. It's what I'm telling myself. Do it, 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 do it. And not doing it. Right. So yeah. I, I just want people to understand how real it really is and what the magnitude is. And I want the media to start reporting it as what it is. And I think a lot of it has to do like, like maybe change the name, maybe change the word, even hyperactivity. You know, you, you talked yeah. about that. Like, I'm when I was a kid, was I more hyper? Like, did I sing songs and make them up all night until I, until one in the morning with my parents saying, Sorry, I got to bed. Like, yes, I did. As an adult, do I do that? No, I just play a word game in my head. And while you're talking to me, cause you're not interesting enough or right. I drum my fingers or, you know, I change immediately to something else, even though I'm like, okay, I got to finish this report, finish this report, finish this report. Oh, glasses. I should order those before I get to my meeting. I have to prepare for this in 10 minutes, but surely I can get this done in time. And then I'm late. You know, it's, it's not about you at all. And it's not about what I want or don't want to do. It's not about my respect. And although I'm talking a lot right now, I also just want to say one of the biggest benefits of this is of the diagnosis is understanding. It's almost like, let me turn a table for you. I think neurodivergent people need to learn what neurotypicals think like. You know, I had no idea, right? Like there, there was, it was about a year ago when um, somebody showed me a, a, a video where some guy was baffled because he was talking with somebody and was saying, so, um, so what, what's it like in your head? You know, when, when the voices are going and the person looked at, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. And yeah. it, was, it was the first time I was 41 years old, 42 years old, maybe that it occurred to me that there were people out there who don't constantly have not just one, but like 
five voices going on at the same time and this constant stream of of thought and narrative, you know, processing the world going on at the same time. Some people's heads are just calm. Yeah. Like, but you know what else? Some people don't resonate with that description, right? right. So like I, one TikTok video, similar to what you're describing, right? This woman's like, this is how I operate every morning. And she's walking up and says, oh, don't forget to take that banana off the counter. Oh, I should, didn't turn off the stove that time. Where are my keys? And she's like, "It's but it's all voices. It's a different voice overlaid, right? They're all talking right. at once. I was like, that is not me. Like, I don't have that. Until I took medication and I realized what she was talking about. Mm-hmm. It doesn't manifest for me. And it, it didn't at the time as voices per se yeah but those thoughts like the thoughts are in my head Mm -hmm. like that constantly i had not realized right um and so yeah to know that that is not happening for other people but also like my, my empathy point for example like you tell me i say how are you and you say not great my dad just died and I am like, like most people would expect the response to be, oh my God, I'm so sorry to hear that. Like, tell me more, let me listen to you. Right. And I'm, my response is sometimes something to the effect of like, oh, I have a dad. And like, once he got sick and da 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 da. Right. And people are like, what the hell is Sarah making it all about her again? Yeah. And the perspective shift, number one, that I was able to realize about myself, because I thought, I feel so empathetic. I feel like a nice person. I feel like I care about people. Why does everyone think I'm a bastard all the time? Like, why do they think I am just a heartless person? And it's that sometimes, right? It's like, oh, Sarah, I try to talk to her, but she doesn't listen. She just talks about herself. But knowing now that actually that's myself just sort of laying out a buffet of commonality for you and saying, let me connect with you. Like mm-hmm. I too have had an experience. It might not be the same. I'm not pretending it's the same. I'm not saying all that because that's happening in the background of my head. I'm saying, I'm mm-hmm. thinking it in my head and I'm assuming, you know, my good intentions. And, but I'm, I'm just trying to say, yeah. here's an offering of some way that I can relate to you. I hope that brings you comfort. Right. And to know now that 75% of the world finds that deeply offensive has changed my reaction to people a little bit, right? It's like, oh, this is not what they are going to want to hear. Sometimes they'll still start that way. And then I see their face start going and I'm like, okay, wait. And how do you feel about this, right? All the things too that I wouldn't mind people doing to me. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's opened up a whole different perspective for me too on. um, Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, I felt like, there was a period in my life where I had to train myself to have normal responses to things. Right. I'm um, not into training myself. To, I don't want to. So, but I, I hear you. I, I've moved away from it for the most part. Yeah. But there, there was a period where I was like, it's easier to just give them what they want. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which in its own way is a selfish thing for me of to course. have done. Yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, t- to your point, the, the sort of, thing that that you're describing is trying to create a commonality and in, in, in the humanity that you both have right mm-hmm. yeah. um, and it's easy for you or us to understand that that's the intention and that's what we're trying to do um, but yeah I, I mean I, I've been told a bunch of times probably like you have you just talk about yourself all the time mm. right? and it's like well I find myself pretty interesting Names, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. 
No, and I I do talk about myself all the time. And I mean, we've talked about two reasons for that. One is the finding the commonality by just sharing. Mm-hmm. The other is um, that's how I process what I think and feel about every single thing. For me, it's not the same for everybody. Um, and even just realizing, I don't think I was self-aware enough about that fact to know. And I, I don't know if this is connected to ADHD. It, I think it is, actually. I think it's one of the seven executive functions now that I think of it. Um, but self-awareness, right? Um, I am exceptionally self-aware if I remember to be or if someone points it out, right? And so if I'm at the physio and he says, okay, raise your arm to the t- high and like turn to the right. And I'd be like, he's like, no, turn like a human being. Like as if you are a body moving. And I'm like, oh, okay. Thank you for reminding me that I am a person. (laughs) So, you know, and so if someone, I think that's part of the reason in relation to conflict, Mm. like, I mean, in a way I love conflict because like dopamine, but in another way, um, I'm not bothered by it. I'm not, I don't, I'm not actually fighting when I talk in my normal voice, which is very, very firm and loudish and Mm -hmm. so on. But, um, you know, an argument is, I'm, I've just lost my entire train of thought, but um, <laughs> something to do with like connecting and personalities and I don't know, it'll come back to me later. Yeah. No, this, this is a perfect example of what happens yeah. sometimes, right? You're in the middle of something and then. I had 60 yep. things I wanted to say yep. and they yep. all just crash into each other and, right. and then everything disappears. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, I'm curious, when you look back, when was, do, do you recall the first time that you became consciously aware of the fact that, that your brain might work a little bit differently from a normal person? I don't think I ever specifically thought about it as my brain. Mm-hmm. Fair. Um, I've always been completely different. And where was the first time? I mean, I, I don't have these like big light bulb moments most of the time. I noticed some of it when I was young and... Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, I was very, 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 very shy when I was young. I wouldn't talk. I wouldn't speak outside of my home. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden it switched and I didn't stop talking ever again. And I am no longer a wallflower. And if I tell people that I'm shy, I, I was in my 20s, mid 20s, late 20s. I said I was shy to someone and they were like, no, you're not. What earth are you talking about? <laughs> um, but, you know, there was a little bit of minor bullying when I was little too, just like pick, people picking on me. Um, I definitely say things that others don't or won't, and that aren't always necessarily what people perceive as the right thing to say. So, you know, every now and then I I saw that a little bit growing up and in school, but then in university, in high school, it was almost the opposite. I was friends with every group all the time, Mm -hmm. you know, and then, um, when I started to embrace, I think a little bit more how officially different I was it was when I was working and I would do well for example executive coaching or the the session I told you I went to where I learned different personalities right Mm -hmm. so I think it was called human dynamics maybe and the teacher taught us about the four different types and you know these are people that it's kind of like the INTJ I think they're all sort of the same in some way 
Um, and so we talked about all this. And the last exercise on the last day was we were going to do a group project. So the idea was you go around to each table, you go to the one you think you resonate with the most, you talk to the people about how they do things. And like, if it resonates, that's probably the place for you. And if not, you move to the next most likely. By the time I got to the third table, I was like, it's not the fourth table, guys. Like, it cannot be that one. I was sure I was going to be in the one that's like more talkative and da 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 da. So I asked the teacher, I said, like, it's not the one of people that just sit quietly in corners and don't speak. And she said, oh, yeah. So, well, I think based on what you're telling me, I think you're actually this other type. So in there's actually nine types, as it turns out. Mm-hmm. We cover the four most popular. There are four others that are described in a bit of detail in the book. And, and you're the ninth one that they, they name, but they don't even bother to go into because it's so rare that no one ever has it. Yeah. And so in that course, I did the group project alone, I, you know, which was fine. Mm-hmm. And everyone at the end of it wanted to be my friend. They were so impressed. They're like, oh my God, you were so funny and so self-deprecating. And, you know, you're so different and unique. And can I be your friend? And can we connect at work? And you know, and so that happened. But what I'm realizing every time I do anything, I'm in, I'm always in the like top or bottom 1% of people on everything, which is, you know, when I said about go big or go home, I'm not into, by the way, hustle culture of any kind. That's not what I'm referring to. It's more, it's kind of my way at that moment of saying all or nothing, because that hundred percent resonates with me at all times. I am either doing the thing you know, I'm meeting my friends and I'm like, this is amazing. I'm having such a great time. We should do this every day. And they laugh at me when I say that. Right. And then, or it's, I'm sitting on my couch. Should I leave my house? Not this week, sir. I'm just going to stay here. So yeah, it's, um, I've always known I was different. I've always liked that I'm different. I've always found myself eminently more interesting than anybody else. I would want to be my friend if I had the option. I wish I could find, Another me, but who also had slightly more ability to not talk all the time, because then how am I going to talk all the time? But yeah, a version of me would be a really great friend, I feel. That, that's interesting. I, I've always thought that if if I knew me, we would spontaneously combust, right? <laughs> it would be, you know, matter sure. and antimatter just sort of meeting each other, and, and it would not not go well. Although I can understand why... Why? Um, I think that I would find myself insufferable. Even if you had your same interests? Especially if we had the same interests. Mm. Right? I mean, I find that most of the people that, that I become very close with do things that are entirely outside of the world that I live in. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, my best friends are you know, a chemist, um, somebody in data analytics at Google, um, you know, people who are doing things that can teach me something as opposed Mm -hmm. to like, if I were with myself, I'd just be like, I know, I know that. Like, (laughs) I I get it. Right. Think of all the arguments and all the dopamine. Like you just, (laughs) you don't think that'd be fun somewhat. Uh, you, what if you didn't have to spend all you, like this doesn't have to be the only person you spend time with right this is just to be your bestie who gets you don't you think I, I mean maybe I'm open to the possibility sure um, and, and let me also say when you were talking about interests I realized in a weird way I don't have any and by that I mean everything is somewhat interest. Like I have disinterest. Is that a weird thing? I like, I live my life based on what I don't want to do more so. Um, 
And so when I think about myself as a friend, to be honest, it's not about, oh, do you like the same things as me? Or do you talk about the same things? Or do you think the same way? But what it is about is helping me get back to myself naturally. So one of my best friends, I'm, I mean, I don't know where you meet all these wonderful people that have nothing to do with your life. Like, I don't even know how you become a best friend with a chemist. I don't know any. Um, I don't think. I mean, on my LinkedIn network. Like, uh, <laughs> I'm a um, but the, the um, yeah, my best friend is a banker because I bank. Sure. Um, but she's a person who, when we worked together, which is how I met her long, long ago as a, I was a teller. And she was a back office person. And we would, one of my best friends, I should say, I have like a couple of very close ones. But anyway, we would walk down the street towards my apartment and we'd be like, should we go and, or we, maybe we had dinner. We had tapas. We had some drinks. Mm-hmm. And we walked down the street and we're like, should we go into the Irish pub? We're like, well, we don't really need another drink. Okay, well, let's go in the Irish pub anyway. And instead of getting a drink, because there's some live music on, we push the tables aside and dance a jig for the folks, get a clap and walk out, right? Like, <laughs> I want people who don't look at me like I'm a nut job because I want to do something weird and impulsive and that are not, it's not that I don't want people to be embarrassed, but I want people to be able to hang with me and be embarrassed and just be embarrassed together. Like it's the togetherness that makes it not embarrassing in a way, right? Um, and so I, that, I think it's more the, the adventurousness and the impulsivity and the devil may care attitude that I think I bring to a friendship that I would love someone to also bring to me. And in part, that's because, especially as a lawyer, a lot of this has been beaten out of me, right? Like I, I made that really aggressive ish post on, on LinkedIn the other day. People, like, it's so funny because sometimes you get a lot of likes on certain things when you're really mm-hmm. honest. And, I mean, it does drop straight into no one is commenting, probably out of fear, right. when it's, I am grand. Like, I am a great human. I really respect me and think that I'm awesome, you know? People are like, oh, I don't want to necessarily support that sort of cockiness is what they view it as, right? And I do not view it as cockiness. I am not trying to be cocky. I'm saying, guys, you should all love yourself. Like you're amazing in your own way. And I like what I bring to the table and it's different than what you bring. Yeah. You know, you know, and so much of that is just socialized into us that, you know, we're we're not supposed to be, you know, big and important. Right. And, you know, a lot of this and, a lot of this comes back to just the basic industrial mindset, right? You're supposed to be a cog in the wheel, right? You're yeah. supposed to be an interchangeable part, right? And if you are a big personality, right? Or if you aren't going to be the person who sits nicely in the classroom and just accepts teaching and you raise your hand and say, actually, Napoleon did have a son. He was the Prince of Rome and you're wrong. Yeah. Right. People are going to get upset with you, Right. But having that ownership over yourself, right, is actually, I think, a good thing to your point, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that you're like, I'm fucking amazing and everybody needs to love me and all this kind of stuff, right? It's just, no, like, I've got some interesting aspects and I like myself, right? I think a lot of us would be a lot better off if we were able to put aside some of that self-loathing that is just socialized into us from the time we're tiny, tiny kids. Yeah. And that's where I think some of my self-awareness and my oblivion 
and the disconnect and the inconsistency of it really serves me. And I have three things I want to say now. I'm going to forget them for sure. But I wanted to go, you mentioned something before about being diagnosed as a child and people not thinking it's real. And I had someone once say, you know, I probably have ADHD too, but like my mother is a teacher and she didn't want me to be stigmatized with the diagnosis and have an excuse for laziness. So there's that. But on the point about like speaking up in a class, even in school, I had Mr. Matasak, I remember. Like 50% of teachers thought I was amazing. They loved it. Oh my God, right. look at this student so engaged. So like, she might be wrong. You know, she might dig in. Um, you know, as I mature, like bear in mind, we're also just human beings that mature right, over time too. Right? Like, I, I, well, when I, I mean, I was in my thirties and I was still digging in hard, trust me. But, um, yeah, now that I'm starting now to, to be a bit more self-aware and say, oh, okay, well maybe I can actually learn something from the teacher instead of just <laughs> telling them this is not, but why, but why, but why, but why? Right. And so, but I said once at work that 50% of people love me and 50% tend to not like me much at all. Mm -hmm. This was in a, a meeting, a new boss, right. And sort of saying, well, um, I'm aware that I'm a yeah. big person and I'm aware that this is my personality. And one of the ways that I self cope with self cope with being a human being that I like, but I don't know, whatever, um, is I try to go out with people and socialize with them because I feel if they can see me in my natural habitat and not in work, that maybe they will not take personal offense because right. I also cut them off in meetings or whatever. And you know, I, I try that. That's how I make an effort to network with people at work so that they, I bring them along this journey. It doesn't work for everybody, but I try. I'm also very open to coaching. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, okay. And then in my feedback at the end of the year, it was like, yeah, but, you know, Sarah seems to have given up on half of the people and doesn't care that they don't like her. And I was like, that's really not what I said at all. Um, Quite the again, I know that the way I speak, you're going to take it your way. So I guess, but yeah, it's, it's, there is something to be said for a lot of people will find us really, really interesting because we are impulsive because we say what we mean. Sometimes that's because they respect that we do it because they're like that. But oftentimes they respect that we do it because they couldn't possibly, right? Like they just are not brave enough to speak out when they say that. Mm -hmm. And then 50% of the people think we're too big for our britches and what the hell is our problem and why do we think we have the right to have any opinion? And the third thing, look at me remembering them all. This? And I, this is the one I think you would actually appreciate maybe the most because of your, what I perceive to be your sort of academic feelings. But have you heard of or are familiar with Yentalone? No. Okay. So I'm married to a Dane. And I learned about this thing called Yentalone the Janta law, if you're not Danish, okay. I guess. Um, the concept, and I'm going to ruin it entirely, but the gist is, it, it's sort of almost, I think it's like a poemy thing or something, but it's the essentials are, who are you to be better than anybody else? And, you know, it's, it's, it permeates the Danish culture. Mm -hmm. It permeates, yeah. I think, other Scandinavian cultures as well. But this idea that humility and, you know, not being about yourself is a virtue and that, and it, like when you when I say how it permeates, you know, um, if you were to say, well, my husband's story sometimes, and he's going to be so mad that I'm talking about him on it. 
show. But anyways, he'll say something like, um, yeah, I'm someone in Denmark will say, what do you do? And you're like, oh, I'm uh, the chief operating officer of a mining company. Oh, what do you mean? Like, oh, yeah, no, I manage uh, building the camps and putting all the infrastructure in. You know, we're still at the exploration stage. I chop down, um, you know, parts of the rainforest in a sustainable way. He's at silviculturist, so he has an ecological bent for, towards that. And they say, oh, are, are you an engineer? Like, I, I build a 62-kilometer road in the jungle. Are you an engineer? No. Well, you can't do that. Well, I am doing it. Right, right. What do you mean? I, in right? fact, I am. Right. Yeah, and like, but it's like if you haven't paid, it's, it's like legal as well. Like if you haven't paid your dues, if you haven't earned, you're, who are you to give that document directly to the client? You're not the partner. You're not, you're new. How, what do you think you can do that? Right. And a really funny conversation I had with someone that really put the whole thing into perspective about what, I don't mean to be insulting to Danes, but like, it's a really stupid thing. Um, <laughs> I was in Greenland. We moved there for a little bit because um, we were interested and in, it's part of Denmark, as you may know. And so we, I was at a massage therapist and John away with my face down on the table. This guy was from Denmark and a lot of Danes come to Greenland to work and experience this piece of their heritage. And he he sort of commented, I said I was a loud person and I was like, yeah, but you know, Americans, oh my God, Americans are just so, they're so full of themselves and they're so confident and arrogant and all this stuff. And he sort of, I said, yeah, that sounds like a sort of Yentalone thinking kind of playing out here. And he said, yeah, no, it's true. So, but you know what the irony of it is? You think, who am I to be, to have an opinion of myself? And yet you're standing here telling me you're better than Americans because you're so humble. And so the circular reasoning of this whole situation, like, don't be, think you're better than anybody else because that's disgusting and yet the whole premise of it is judgment of others for not being like you it really it, it made me laugh first of all i made him laugh he's like i never really thought about it that way i'm like yeah tell all your friends you know <laughs> tell tell the Lord. yeah uh so anyway but that that kind of for me also raises just a general idea in my head that I noodle away at all the time, which is why do we care how anybody else is? And we, you know, you can say, well, because it impacts me, right? Oh, Sarah talks too much in meetings and it impacts me at work and I can't get my stuff out. Well, is that really true? Because I mean, maybe you're not comfortable, but in theory you could cut me off. I'm actually not going to be offended. You might not know that, but if you cut me off and say, Sarah, can like, you just take a beat here? Like no one else has had a chance to say anything. Even if you say it in that tone of voice. My turn. I'm right. like, like, oops, <laughs> right. go on. Right. Yeah. Um, I had a coach once say, you know, Sarah, you have a lot of opinions, but like, I'm the coach. <laughs> like, oh, right. Fair enough. Cool. Right. Thank you, know, you for reminding me. set, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the thing that I don't know whether, um, it comes easier with ADHD or, or whether it's just something that you come to somehow is the recognition that nobody knows what we're doing actually. And there's nobody who can give you permission to do anything really. And so if mm -hmm. you want to do something, just go fucking do it, start mm -hmm. doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, now there are certain apparatuses put into place to, you know, limit some of that. You know, like if I didn't have a law license, I would get in a lot of trouble for doing the kind of work that I do. Sure. But, you know, nobody said that I, you know, could or could not become a lawyer. 
I decided to go to school and kind of study for the bar exam. Um, and <laughs> here I am. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, the, the thing is, so many of us are waiting to get permission to do things or to be called on to say, it's your turn, right? The thing is, it's, it's always your turn if you decide to. And I, I, I wish that more people would, would internalize that and, and recognize that it's their choice to do or not. Yeah. Even in relationships and mm-hmm. conversations, right? Um, we spend a lot of time. I have a new analogy that I've been using. Um, it came out of a conversation I had in business, but um, I feel like a, we're often like shuffling to the back of the line until we know that it's okay to do the thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you that maddens me as a coach in like sport when you're like, let's do this thing. And they're like, Oh, you go first. No, you, no, you, no, you. And I'm like, just like, we all like the sport. We all know how to play it. We all know what we're doing. Just go. Why do you not want to be the first one that looks dumb? Like, do we care about looking dumb? But it's all of, it is literally the whole societal mm-hmm. overlay. I'm supposed to be liked. I'm supposed to not offend. I'm supposed to um, not look silly. And I say all of this knowing full well that another one of my, I don't know if I can call it a value because it's actually just a fear maybe. Mm. Um, And I think with a little bit of thought, I think I actually absorbed this from my mother, um, which I didn't realize until she told me a story about like being surprised once. But I, one of my deepest things I I will not do is look like a fool. Like Mm. I do not wish to look like a fool. And I don't mean... I don't want to be dumb and and do something silly. It's not that. I don't want to be the last person to know that my boyfriend is cheating on me. I do not want to be the last, the only one in the room who isn't aware that X. And so Mm -hmm. um, that is the one thing I think that, but I almost don't think that that really aligns with what society expects of me. The, all the expectation things I almost couldn't give two shits about. Like, you think that I am a big personality. Great. I don't care. I am. Thank you for noticing. Lots of people like that about me. I like that about myself. Um, <laughs> the red light just came on. Like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, but like, I am not afraid and it's good. You know, this whole risk taking that comes alongside impulsivity makes us great lawyers, right? Mm-hmm. Because we say to our clients, I mean, this is what the law says, but I mean, if you didn't do this, the risk is someone might sue you. I don't really think that risk is very high mm-hmm. in this case. I think the deal is small. I think the whatever, right? Right. Um, it also is what I guess caused me to walk into the law school after. So I, I got a really good LSAT score, mm-hmm. or at least I think I did enough that schools invited me to come to their school and apply. Right. And then I applied and they said, Oh, I'm sorry. I seen your grades. This is not uh, a thing. <laughs> my grades weren't bad. They were just slightly below the cutoff and certainly not top of the class, largely because in the first half of this, well, anyway, I'll get to that part of the story and I'll explain why that happened. But, um, my, I, I just walked into the law school and to the Dean and I said, can I just talk to you about what I need to do to get here next year? Like, how do I need, what do I, did I take another course? What courses should I take? Mm-hmm. Like, could I do some extracurricular activities that would make my attract, my application more attractive? And he said, well, 
you know, your grades aren't bad. They're just below the cutoff. And, you know, it always happens that people don't turn up. And, you know, if someone doesn't come in the first week of school, you're showing a lot of interest and more interest than a lot of people who are just applying because their parents think they should go to law school. So, you know, Mm -hmm. tell you what, if someone doesn't turn up, I'll call you. The next week he called me, invited me to go to law school. And there I was, right? (laughs) But most people be like, oh, I'm not supposed to ask. I'm not supposed to. Right. It's too embarrassing to admit that I didn't get in in front of the dean and ask him, go to the dean level instead of just the admin assistant and say, like, what do I do? You know, and that sort of meekness is just not something I have at all, except when I accidentally start following other people or lose all of my confidence through, like I said, the, the depression stuff that I ended up experiencing. Right. Yeah. yeah, no, I get that. It, one of the things that, you know, when I was growing up, you know, I, I used to think that people whose books I read or who I saw in the news or on television or something like that were somehow like these mythological figures that yeah. were. And then when I was like 15, I was like, no, these are probably just real people. Yeah. Um, and I just started emailing like authors that I was reading that were still alive. And you know what? Most of them just write back. Right? Yeah. Like, oh, hey, thanks for reading the book. You know, and you start realizing that we create, you know, this this notion that, you know, there are things that you're not supposed to do because there are people in positions that that are untouchable or should not be approached. And to your point, yeah. Most of the time, those people are like, "Oh, cool, let's talk," right? You know, I, I I appreciate you know the the ability to just come and and treat me like a another person as opposed to some big important you know yeah. uh, title that I might have. Yeah, um, I've thought a lot lately to this point about celebrities because they're not as responsive as you might guess. No. Like they kind of just ignore you if you try to get in touch, but not that I do, but I mean, even just you post on their thing with a comment and like, no one pays any attention. I think about people like Taylor Swift and like Blake Lively. I'm like, those people seem so cool. Not because they're rock stars, Mm -hmm. just because, I mean, Blake Lively's married to Ryan Reynolds. And if that funny man is willing to be married to her and think she's funny, like she's got to be a riot to spend time with. And, you know, Taylor Swift is just nice to women and people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she seems like a good human, maybe a little young, but sure. Like, and I feel like, you know, even Serena Williams, I would love to just talk to that woman about how different we are about sport. Right. I think I made a post about this once and it was like, I cannot relate entirely to the level of dedication that this woman has to her sport. I really respect it. Um, And I understand that that is sometimes what makes someone actually very, very elite, maybe Mm -hmm. always. But you can be quite elite without having put that much effort in if you have some talent, right? Right. Kind of rambling on this, but um, about celebrity. Then there was something, I think it was maybe Jamie Lee Curtis or something. Someone that is very famous said recently, something that made it very clear that they were a person. I think it was her and she said, like, we all have challenges right it was on one of these good morning america she just did you know we all have challenges we're all people we're all going through things and i just wish similar to the way we describe adhd that more people more celebrities would say i'm a human being like yes okay i have a curated image and there's elements of that that i've got to keep up but i also sometimes get sad i also put my pants on one leg at a time for lack of a better example you know and i mean one of the things that 
I work with a lot of um, startups and businesses that scale, right? Mm-hmm. And I've I've worked with a couple of people um, who have over the past couple of years had you know like eight figure, almost nine figure exits from things, mm-hmm. right? And it's really easy, right? When they were building the business, they thought that everything is going to be okay once I get the money, right? And I think the same thing happens for celebrities. Everything will be okay when everybody knows who I am, right? And there's this externality that they're going for as opposed to realizing that the money and the celebrity is never going to do it for you, right? That's not if you're not going to enjoy the process, like I got news for you, you're going to get famous and you're going to have money and then you're never going to have privacy again. So you're you're going to use it to do all these really fun things, but really you're just going to go to the beach with a paparazzi on your bikini line. Like it's not, it's not what you expect. I am, I am spreading this word about on the one hand, I've been rejecting the idea of things like meditation for a really long time because you know, woo. But then on the other hand, I've tried it. Whoa, that's calms me down. And on the other hand, I think there's a way, it's just finding it, right? And this is the biggest thing for me that is the biggest roadblock in every area of my life. Like, how do I find the right person to coach me? How do I find the right type of meditation to do or the right way to look at it? But the idea that just you have to be able to enjoy now and that, I may still struggle with it, obviously. Like, we think about our futures. We think about our past. We ruminate a little bit. But I know that when I get the money, it's, I mean, sure, there's going to be like a slightly different level of stress about certain things in my life, but it's not going to solve any of the regular life problems that I have at all. And so I'm really trying to recognize that. And one of the good things too about being off work, not off work, I've been been running a business, but not being in a corporate environment with a steady paycheck um, has been... I mean, I've upped and down all over the place in terms of my relationship with money. There was a a point where I was like, um, I'm fine because I've got all this money that I didn't save, but, you know, I owned a house. And so I got equity and had investments from stock plans and things. And then I started to think, you know, I don't need to have fancy clothes. And I I used to go and be like, I am wearing $10,000 worth of things right now with this Burberry jacket and this fancy diamond ring and this da-da-da. And then I was like, you know what? Jeans are cool. Like I should, those yeah. are fine. I don't ever need to wear a suit again. Right. And we both show up in, in hoodies. Yeah. Right? And, and I'm, I'm, I've also evolved a little bit too, where I, now I realize, wait a second, I don't, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Hang on a minute. I can mm-hmm. look reasonably put together sometimes or when it's appropriate or when I want to, I can be comfortable when I want to. I don't owe to anybody my looks. It's convenient that the pandemic happened as well because now no one necessarily expects the same level, right. but even I'm just going to say stupid things like living in Canada, walking out in the cold. I'm going to tell you it's a thousand times better when you're not wearing nylons, a skirt and a high heeled boot in a blizzard. You know, it's nice when I can just wear pants and the biggest fluffiest boots I would have mocked my auntie for when I was mm-hmm. young. And like, why are you wearing mucklucks? This is ridiculous. Why is your coat long? Why are you wearing a hat and mittens? Like I have an open coat and I just pull my sweater sleeves down over right. my hand when I'm 11. Right. But now I'm just like, it's all about the comfort. I just comfort and, but you can, you can look good in comfortable things too. You sure. just got to find it. Right. 
don't know how I got on fashion from that. <laughs> well, Bring me back if you can. <laughs> we were talking about the the notion that you know the celebrity itself isn't going to make you happy. The money itself yeah. isn't going to make you happy. And I mean, yes, I understand that when up to a certain level, the money will make you happy, right? As yeah. you know, to the extent that you don't have money for food or shelter or you know the basic money. At, up to a threshold as a necessity for being happy. But then you hit a point where more money doesn't necessarily mean more happiness. Yeah. Right. Or more ability to um, uh, enjoy or participate in life in a way that, you know, would be different from previously. Um, but we've been trained to, to think of money or celebrity or status as this heuristic for I've, I've made it. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I tell uh, folks that I work with when I'm working on estate plans with them, right? Um, be careful about just leaving a ton of money to a kid. Yeah. Right? Because money, they will think, means that they can be happy. But it's purpose that makes people happy, not money. Right? Um, and it's really easy to lose sight of that. But you know what's really hard? I don't know if you're experiencing this, but every time you talk, I'm like, I have five things that of I need course. to address. Oh. Does everybody have this? Or is, just, no, is it I, just ADHD or is this like... I mean, I don't know if it's just ADHD, but I think it is very much an ADHD kind of thing. Okay. I don't agree that purpose is what makes us happy, but I'm open to evolution. I, I think I once thought that that was what it was. I actually think it's connection. I actually, and, and impact mm -hmm. in those connections that you have, um, which is why a lot of what, okay, I have so many directions. Let's talk about work for one second. Okay. okay? So at work, who do I like the best? The people that appreciate the work that I do and who see that I bring value to the thing, who don't mind or like the way that I deliver my advice, who can push back on me because I appreciate that because it's mm -hmm. how I test my yeah. ideas. Um, then we were kind of talking about money, so I'm going to weave this in a little tiny bit. But for me, money, I'm, I suppose I have the same societal, you know, when you get money, you. But I also have at work, people, people, I thought I was money grubbing a little bit. Like, why do you need a promotion? Why do you want a bigger bonus? Why do you want this and this? I'm like, in a work context, the money, the value of money to me is for someone who is not a friend or a very close relationship to me, this is how you and your organization show me you value me. True. Right. That's fair. I care about the money because if you don't give it to me, it means you think I'm not good at my job. It does not mean because I tell you, sir, you got way more money than I did. And that guy over there got a bonus of $4 million. So don't tell me you don't have the money. You're choosing to give it to someone else because you value their work more. You value their contribution more. You value their retention more, whatever it is, right? And that's okay. You make your choices. <laughs> oh, that was supposed to be an up one if I was going to do anything. Um, <laughs> you, you make your own choices and I'm cool with that. But then don't ask me why I'm leaving your organization sure. because – this is your way to show me. And sure, there are other ways. You can send me on a trip. You can pay for me to do a course. You can do it. But like at some point, 
I have to also agree that that is something that I feel makes me feel like you value me, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's that you know scene in Mad Men where Peggy says, "Well, Don, you never say thank you," and he says, "That's what the money's for," right? Yeah, and it is partly, but it's all again, everybody's different, right? So, right. what does Peggy want? Peggy wants someone to turn to her and say, "You're great so at you're, this. You're doing amazing, right?" Yeah, yeah. And listen, don't get me wrong, I want that too, but. I never really had that problem. I had people coming and saying, you're amazing to me, right? And that was great. And they're like, but we only have $5. And so unfortunately, you know, or yeah, anyway, I won't go into the money stuff at work because it's one of the key things that makes me rage a little bit. But in relationships as well, um, I think connection and impact like I, I'm able to make impact for people at work that think, oh, you do, you did a wonderful thing on this and it really made my life easier. Yeah. And I have less patience for someone who I say, look how you asked me to do this in four weeks and I told you it was impossible because of the regulators, but I did it in three instead. And you say, great, let's beat that record next time. I will <laughs> not beat that record, sir. I will no. also not get a good bonus this year and I will leave. Um, but then outside of that, when it's like people and friends and stuff like that, the people that I feel most connected to are the people that appreciate that I bring something to their life and that bring something to mine. And sometimes what, and everybody brings different things, right? Like my friend who pushes aside the tables and dances, she brings excitement and, and she's encouraged me to let go of things like expectation, right? Mm -hmm. If you expect something to happen, then you're disappointed when it doesn't. And not in that Murphy's law, glass half empty, like don't expect anything good otherwise kind of way, but just, in a appreciate what people are capable of giving you. Right. Mm-hmm. And there are people who are very close friends who are not always capable of um, reaching out regularly. Sure. Or, you know, everyone brings different things. And so I just think I, I want to be around people that I'm making an impact with. And that is where money sometimes appears to take an outsized role, but it's really not about piling it up in a bank account Sometimes it's about being able to do something really cool with it, right? And not just for myself. Would I love to pay my brother's mortgage off? Yeah, right? Do I think that would be good for him and he would learn anything from it? Probably not. Will I do it? Probably not. But I'm just saying, you know, there are things I would love to do for others with money, right? I'd love to donate to charity more. I, I am so envious at times of friend, not envious. I don't know what the word is. Someone said envy versus jealousy. I don't remember which is the good one, but I look at people giving to charity and I think, oh my gosh, I wish that I felt comfortable enough mm-hmm. that I will you know, pay my rent next month that I would be okay to just give $10,000 to the Red Cross right now for something, yeah. you know? it's um, Yeah. But the Speaking of woo things that I railed against forever, and now I'd like to bring one to your attention. Um, Eckhart Tolle talks about you know, the power of now. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. read it. I listened to that podcast while mowing the lawn and doing chores up at the cottage the other summer. And the thing that I just cannot get out of my head is that there is no problem in the present moment. If you don't overlay the past or the future at all, mm-hmm. and it's hard because you think, well, I'm not, but like, I don't have any money in this present moment. It's like, yeah, but that is not a problem. Right. Because right now, what are you trying to buy? Right now, if you needed food and you had no money, in a way, it's kind of a if you're standing in the store in that moment and think, but maybe the answer is drink a glass of water to tide you over till you get to the store to buy the food or get a mm-hmm. you know, finish the job that gets you paid or ask someone to spare you a muffin. Right. 
Like, you know, and it is actually very fascinating to, because I paused for a second. I thought, is there a problem in this present moment? Like, there isn't. He's right. It's impossible. I am just blown away by that concept and I love it. And it's really, really, really taken a huge amount of the pressure that I've been feeling to move my business forward, get clients, you know, get paid. Um, yeah, just. And, and there is the, the simple phenomenological truth that we are always in and now, right? Yeah. Perpetually forever. There mm-hmm. like time is an, is, is an event threshold, right? Um, we only exist in a specific moment forever. Um, I find it's a concept that a lot of people sort of, when, when you, when you say it, they're like, Oh yeah. But, but you have to actually grapple with it a little bit to understand that, you know, the, the implication of it in the, in the way that you're talking about can be tremendously profound. Yeah. Um, so I had a campfire conversation once with some footy people and some of them were from France. People in France learn more stuff than we do here. Holy cow. Like they are educated. Anyways, they were talking about the nature of time and I've now forgotten it because it was a while ago. But I just was in awe of how time as like a scientific concept is so big and confusing and, you know, it's almost like the universe. It's like, how can you actually fathom that there are this many, like we're in one galaxy that looks gigantic and yet, and yet time is equally as awe inspiring and confusing. Um, And so I, I, I mean, I think it's a bit, sometimes too scientific for me to go. I just, I can't focus on it too long. I don't think, but there was a person who um, suggested a book to me and I don't remember what it's called. I got it somewhere, but some woman just did like a little picture book about the ways that she would describe. She relates to time as a person with, I think ADHD could have been autism. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of them was as a spiral Mm -hmm. where like you can't necessarily see what's down in there. And that resonated a bit. And it also resonated with the fact that I actually had a dream and that I wrote it down once. And the start, the middle of it was me running down a spiral staircase. And Hmm. it was not even a staircase. Anyways, it's a long story. Um, The other description was uh, kind of an oval, like, Hmm. and it's like a slingshot. And to me that Hmm. also almost even more resonates with me because as a person with ADHD, it's like you go around the corners and you get kind of slow. And then all of a sudden you're like, bing, and you just fly off around the end. And then you go slow down around this corner again and bing. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think a part of how I definitely, if I relate to time at all, that's kind of how I relate to it. And again, the all or nothing kind of concept too. Um, but it's also the rest and recovery cycle, right? Mm-hmm. So we need it as well. Indeed. Cool. Well, speaking of time, I've taken almost an hour and a half of your time. Um, I think that's probably a pretty good place to to conclude here. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to to sit and talk through um, some things that you know are, are somewhat abstract, but also some that are very, very particular to a lived experience that, um, 
I mean, you and I sort of share, but as you point out, ADHD is very different for each person who, who has it. There are some clusters of commonalities, but um, I appreciate your openness and, and willingness to come on and shoot the shit. Yeah, thank you. I didn't necessarily expect it to devolve into all ADHD all the time, but apparently that's my personality now. So it's cool. All right. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thanks, Sarah. Appreciate it. Bye. All right. That was the great Sarah Enor. Um, You can find her on LinkedIn. Uh, I will put the link in the show notes. Um, Reach out to her. She is super kind um, and pretty awesome to... I get to know. Anyway, um, thank you for spending this hour and 20 minutes, something like that, uh, taking a listen to Sarah and I talk. Um, I will let you go. Thanks very much. We'll be back in two weeks.